0: Aqua lads and Aqua lasses, welcome back to a new episode here in the Aqua Cave. You know what it is. You clicked on the button, you're ready to get trekking and start a whole new chapter of this saga that we have embarked upon here on Starman where we take Dave Meltzer's worst-reviewed matches, we put them on trial in a court of podcast, law-based entertainment, and we decide, that being me, the royal we, decide if they are found guilty or not guilty of being a negative, what-have-you, star-ranked match. Hence the title, Starman. Now, as I said up top, everybody, man, we're in a new chapter. It's episode 2. Well, if you look at it like Star Wars, it's really like our fifth episode, but I don't want to confuse anybody, so let me just get to the fucking point. It's the beginning of the negative 2 star ranked matches. And folks, this one is going to feel just a little bit different, and uh, I should probably explain why up top. The show's going to be exactly the same, but if you've been watching along at home, for example, like if you have the list at your disposal, you're gonna see and notice right away that unfortunately not every match that Dave has had listed on this uh, in this database is going to be able to be put on trial. Now the reason for that is some of the matches on his list that are ranked this low or this high, depending on how you want to look at it, actually appeared or uh, appear from house shows that Dave actually attended that are not available to watch anywhere, and exist only in his memory. Now, I really, really, really would love to have access to that, especially if you consider that he gave the rankings out maybe after he attended these shows in person, just to see how they would hold up with a different point of view, because if you only see something once, I mean, you're really going off memory, folks. I mean, really, literally, all you have is your memory. So when we get to those, I will uh, point out on the list what we miss out on, and uh, we can all collectively cry together. But on the docket today, we do have three very unique cases that we need to present to the judge and jury. All of these matches take place back in the 80s. So we're heading back to the future. Or wait, no, back to the past. It doesn't matter. We could we could get lost forever trying to figure out how that actually works. But, you know, the negative one and a halfs we started back in this time period and went through the flow of time. Well, we've, we've taken a step backwards now. We're going to start with the negative twos in the 80s. And there are so many firsts here today. It's the first episode that covers negative two star matches. It's my very first time watching two of the three matches that we'll be covering today and it's my very first time watching any matches from one of the organizations that we're going to cover today because for the first time ever, three matches, three different wrestling organizations. Never before, maybe again, I don't know. I've never I haven't gone through and broken down the the match listing out yet. But yeah, it's it's pretty cool actually. We are going to get a little bit of a flavor from uh, three different companies here in the '80s, three very different styles and very different presentations. And what's also interesting is that our, our hour, the same discussion we had the last episode. I'm not going to do it again, but check out. I am going to just take this moment to hype or uh, to shamelessly promote. All of the negative one and a half episodes of Starman. There's four of them. They're a hell of a lot of fun. They're quick listens to. I know Johnny C can be a little long-winded here in the Aqua Cave. I apologize for that. But we're trying to keep these consistent and just sticking to the evidence. It's clearly going to be a happening today in the Aqua Cave. Which was my transition to say we're going to talk about WrestleMania 1. But then I wanted to take a step back to finish my earlier point was that the matches that are on tonight's uh, case docket, because I do think this is important, and I'm willing to sacrifice my transition to get this point across. They take place, you know, obviously our first match is WrestleMania. That cat's out the bag. That's 85, and we're going to be diving into 87 and 88. and And even though those are only a few years apart, especially when you get into like 87 and 88, I mean, it's definitely... Not 1985 anymore. And I know that's obvious, but I'm talking about in terms of present. Well, we'll get there. It's different organizations too, so it may not be as black and white as it would be if we were going WWF straight straight way through, you know what I mean? Because 85 to 88, it's like a whole new world, as my good buddy Aladdin would say. But Aladdin flying through the skies on a carpet, well, that's a happening. And so is the very first WrestleMania, according to Gorilla Monsoon. There's a transition for you. It's the March 31st, 1985, you-know-where, Madison Square Garden. It's the case of Wendy Richter with Cindy Lauper challenging Leilani... Leilani? Wow. We don't do second takes here. What would be the point? Leilani Kai with the fabulous moolah for the WWF Ladies Championship, as it's called. So, as we do here, we'll start with a little bit of context so we understand what it is that we're watching. Well, honestly... What more context do you need, folks? It's WrestleMania One, and this is the match that has Cindy Lauper in it. So, yeah, I mean, there have been music videos, appearances on MTV, all sorts of radio and broadcast television promotion for this show. I mean, it's WrestleMania One, all right. Like, take the legend of all the money being invested in this pro in this program. You know, if it doesn't. If it's not a success, Vince is out of business forever, etc. Everything is on the line. It's absolutely a happening. And to prove this, Lord Alfred Hayes, who we cut to immediately, gets a kiss from the fabulous moolah While he's trying to hype the match. He's so disheveled that he calls this match the match that ties into the Wrestling Rock Connection. Let's go to Mean Gene with Wendy Richter and Cindy LaPa. It's fantastic, and I love it. Uh, a confused, nervous Lord Alfred Hayes. Me and Gene is in the back with the faces. I, I'm not trying to throw shade at Cindy Lauper here because I think that the the world of wrestling exists as it does today in part because Cindy Lauper was excited and wanted to participate in these 1985 and 84 proceedings. But just if you if you ever. She talks about Moolah, and that is important because she's there to protect Wendy from Moolaference, if you want to, you know, be serious about it, even though I called it moola But Cindy, like, talks first. She hits her lines verbatim without taking a breath, and then as soon as Gene takes the microphone away from her, she kind of looks away like, oh, it's done. I did it. I got through that, and kind of doesn't react to the rest of the interview like a real human being would like it took all of her energy and power to memorize her long, longer-than-usual run-on sentence. Wendy indicates that she only lost because Mula interfered, and again, it reiterates that Cindy is here to stop the fabulous Moolah. Mean Gene then is back earlier in the different locker room, allegedly, in a previously recorded statement with Mula and Leilani Kai. Now, the fabulous Moolah has brand new sunglasses that have dollar signs on them, which makes sense because her last name is Moolah, which is another way of saying money. But these dollar signs are backwards and they would only look correct to someone looking in the mirror. I don't have words. (laughs) And I'm hoping that when Moolah picked up the glasses from the tailor she ordered them from, she was just as furious and flabbergasted as I am reporting this to you. But essentially you know, Moolah's like, oh, we're going to win, blah, blah, blah. Now, Leilani Kai, I am not familiar with. She's announced as being from Hawaii, and she has kind of like a grass skirt, shirt style thing. Um, So she's clearly a Hawaiian-themed wrestler, but she absolutely has zero tan, and she's a hick. I mean, listen to her. She finishes her big WrestleMania interview by saying she's coming back with my hand in Victor. And hey, if you're Victor... You should run for your life. I don't mind telling you because I don't know how Leilani Kai is going to get that hand inside you, Victor. But chances are it could be painful. So just at least be aware. Make sure it's a consensual hand in Victor. The heels are already in the ring. And we get the famous run through the back to the ring from uh, Wendy Richter and Cindy Lauper. And they run right by a much younger but somehow still looks exactly the same, Linda McMahon. Cindy Lopper is all fired up, and Wendy Richter is lucky to have her. The ref checks for weapons, as the referees, or excuse me, as the announcers, that's Gorilla Jesse, put over that uh, David Wolf, Cindy Lopper's manager, is here as he always is. Jesse Ventura says that Woodstock is to music, what WrestleMania is to wrestling. Longfellow couldn't have said it better, and it's great, a great piece of information to share with your audience before this big rock and wrestling connection match takes place. Moolah has to be forced out of the ring as the referee signals for the bell. The bell does indeed ring, so order in the court. Now, if it's your first time here in Starman, let's talk about what we do now that we have the context for our match. Basically, I present the evidence that I gathered while watching the match. Now, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, this was really good. This was really bad. I'm just going to present the evidence to you as it hit me. Okay. And I will try to use my natural inflection to let you know the point I'm trying to get across. But as this picture is painted in your mind, you are indeed a jury of your own peers. Maybe you'll agree or disagree with my evidence. That's kind of the fun of it. But at the end, after all the evidence has been collected and given to you, The humble podcast listening audience, I will render a verdict and find the match either guilty or not guilty of the negative two star rating that was applied by Dave. And folks, keep in mind, this ain't no negative one and a halfs. We're up to the negative twosies, the full numbers. Uh, These matches could be on a whole other level, folks. So let's get started. And oh my god, Leilani Kai throws a punch. With her whole arm. Wendy blocks this whole arm punch with her entire arm. Wendy Richter then throws a counter punch with her entire arm. Leilani Kai sells this punch by flying backwards and rolling across the ring. By the time she's done, she's about three quarters across the ring. And unless they're in the Matrix, folks, That's a comically large oversell based on the power of the punch, no pun intended, registered trademark of William Regal, that Wendy applied to the punch. It looks ridiculous. Immediately, Wendy Richter does a hair whip and gets down to gain leverage and Leilani kicks out like it's a pin attempt. It was not. I cannot explain to you, using words that are known to myself, what their arm drags look like. I can't. I don't have words for it. So yeah, Wendy Richter then hits one of the signature maneuvers here on Star Boy. Oh, Star, oh, Star- Boy—that's the song. Oh, Star Man, great! I've ruined it. Cats out the bag. I stole the name from the song. That's okay. The song's the intro and outro to every episode, so I think we're aware of that. But Wendy Richter hits one of the signature maneuvers uh, here on Star Man. We're starting to see this one maneuver appears in almost every match that we've put on trial. It is indeed armbar. Although I'm kind of glad that it's armbar because that has really nice synergy with that arm bar gag that the wrestling community loves. And so I'm going to allow it. Uh, counselor, pros bench. I'm the only one that's allowed to bang the gavel. So sorry, sir. So sorry. That was me apologizing to a judge that doesn't actually exist. So Leilani Kai, though, she counters and hits a maneuver of her own. Arm bar! Leilani Kai gets in a hair whip toss to Wendy Richter and then... Arm bar! <laughs> there are some punches. Leilani Kai gets a one count off of a choke pin. Wendy Richter does kick out of the choke pin. I don't know who to blame here. Why is the referee going down for a pinfall attempt, even though Leilani is indeed mounted on Wendy, when she's choking her? Not only is she thrusting her shoulders up and down off the mat... But a choke is an illegal maneuver. But I guess the referee can't be held. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I can't. Bl- it's the ref. What are you gonna do? Now Wendy Richter applies body scissors, allegedly. I don't really know what she's doing. And then there is a botched maneuver. I can only describe it as a DDT small package scoop slam. But they redo the spot just to let us know what it was supposed to look like. I must say this, Cindy Lauper is doing a great job at ringside, and I mean that. Wendy Richter uh, takes back control of this match by kicking Leilani Kai in the face, but holy shit, even though it sounded like I was being harsh on it, the crowd erupts like Hulk Hogan just won his match. It's, I, was, I was blown away. If you look at my notes, there's like 17 exclamation points because that tells me something that's very important. The crowd is invested in this regardless. Hold on to that thread, people. The referee uh, is ridiculously out of position as the fabulous Moola interferes because he's staring right at her as Moola begins to choke Wendy Richter. He asked he has to act like he doesn't see it, and he walks over and talks to Leilani Kai, admonishing her for an infraction that she hasn't actually done. Cindy Lauper says fuck it and jumps on the fabulous moolah at ringside. The crowd is in a controlled frenzy, much like the punches of Kofi Kingston. And Wendy's punches... uh, Well, she throws more of her full-arm punches to Leilani. Uh, You know, and that's what it is. Wendy Richter gets Leilani Kai on her back. Monsoon says, Airplane spin! Go round and round! But it's not an airplane spin. It's like... Uh... Half Death Valley driver uh, because Leilani doesn't flip. I don't know. We'll call it like an F1 as opposed to the F5. Um, She ruins it though because the F1 wasn't awful. She absolutely ruins it by finishing or following up with an ultimate warrior splash. But the way she spreads her legs and arms, she doesn't look like a sports entertainment combatant trying to achieve victory. She looks like a five-year-old jumping into a ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese Or that crazy Chuck E. Cheese style restaurant that Black Noir went to in the latest episode of The Boys. He's got problems. But so does Wendy Richter. Because Leilani Kai almost drops her and injures her permanently in a backbreaker. Leilani Kai comes off the top rope and hits a crossbody block. Wendy Richter comes from underneath and hits what can undoubtedly be called the worst reversal in the history of our sport. But does indeed... Have enough leverage to gain the one, two, three, and the crowd fucking explodes. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, normally I don't consider post match, but this all happens rather quickly, so I am going to present it to you because it's going to contribute to the overall. Yeah. It's going to just further reiterate the point that I'm going to make because there's, even though there's enough evidence of this in the match be- from bell to bell, I'm going to share this with you because I think it's relevant. So for good measure, Cindy Lauper attacks Mula and it's anarchy and craziness. The fabulous Mula at one point tries to jump into the ring and her foot gets caught on the rope and she does a face plant. I don't know if it's intentional or not intentional, but it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. The faces, that being Wendy Richter and Cindy Lopper, are jumping up and down like crazy, like they just won the World Championship. And guess what? They did. And we get the absolutely historic, iconic shot of Wendy Richter and Cindy Lopper arm in arm in the corner of the ring at Madison Square Garden at the very first WrestleMania, dancing around one another with the title hoisted in the air. I mean, it's history here I am, 2022, talking about it, and you know what it looks like. You've seen it a thousand times. So, I mean, this is the absolute biggest stage, okay? And this is a huge part of the show. And the in-ring work is some of the worst that we've encountered here on Starman. But guess what, guys? These negative star matches usually have well, they usually have a couple things in common, one of them being arm bar, okay? But think of this, too, especially the ones that I found guilty. I mean, we had some pretty weird matches with Saturn uh, and some short matches, and negative the negative one and a half, that just didn't seem to make sense, and they were sort of, you know, they were found not guilty. But the ones that are found guilty usually all have something in common. Bored, boredom, boring chance. Crowd revolts, things like that. And they go for an extremely long time. And that's one of the things that helps the audience get a little lost. But here we are in New York City in a time period where not only would people throw garbage in the ring and put lit cigarettes out on you when you go to ringside if they're not satisfied with what they're witnessing, but these fans explode every time Wendy Richter hits a you know, a, a pretty major comeback spot that looks like she's going to be on top now. Uh, they go crazy for Moola Fearance. They boo like it's nobody's business. And when Cyndi Lauper gets involved, they absolutely blow the roof off the garden. Not to mention, they're losing their shit as the gals dance in celebration. They're here. They never lost them for a second. So guess what? Not guilty. The work is awful. There's hardly any story. And the need for Cindy Lopper to be at ringside was kind of moot. The one spot where there was interference didn't lead to the finish. So that wasn't really the big overall story of the match. Wendy kind of did just win off of a fluke. But man, you know what? The story of the match was to get to the part where the bell rings so we could celebrate and and, and, and be history and be an over-the-top extravaganza. And I'm not trying to sound like a salesperson for the WWF at the time. It's just this, they did it. They created something that lives forever. And no one ever goes back and talks about the match, you know, which means they did their job. Whether or not it was a Tokyo Dome classic or not, would people lovingly talk about WrestleMania? Just talk about the pageantry of WrestleMania. WrestleMania. Cindy Lauper Muhammad Ali Billy Martin Liberace The Dancing The Stupendousness The Body Slams The Hogan The Mr. T The Piper Orndorff breaking that poor broom over his knee No one's like Oh do you remember how awful that Wendy richter Kai match is? No! I mean no one praises it But it's WrestleMania 1 Nobody's here for the bell to bell We're here for the spectacle And this match didn't stink up the joint enough to kill the spectacle of it. And I think a negative two-star match would have done that. I don't know what this is. Maybe this is quarter-star. Dud. I don't know. But this is not negative two. Okay? These women did exactly what they were asked to do. And it's not as if that they've been given the opportunity to hone their craft like the male competitors. And I'm not tra- trying to play the world's smallest violin here. All right. It's just, I mean, come on. It's 1985 ladies wrestling. Okay. Um, they delivered what needed to be done. They got through what had to happen so we could get to the victory party and make some history. And before anybody can revolt against this, the case is fucking closed, we're not going back to it, but that's, I mean, you know, if if my tone hasn't been super serious, you know, I do want to get across, I, I wholeheartedly believe this, okay, I mean, it's not, I'm not defending it on the merits of how sometimes I like shitty stuff. You know, and sometimes I'm laughing. I didn't really laugh during this match as I watched it and took these notes. I try to make humorous notes to make this an engaging listen. But at the same time, I believe what I'm telling you about this. The work is bad, but it's not bad enough to lose their harshest critics. And that's what's important. And that's what matters. You put Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man Randy Savage in this uncensored cage match from our episode three, go back, or no, episode two. It's the first match of episode two. It's sort of the defining match of this entire journey so far. It's a cage match. It's a blood feud. It's 20 minutes long. And it doesn't have a fucking finish. And the crowd is, I mean, you could hear uh, someone cough, okay? So, yeah. And that's the main event of that show. It's the key selling point. So, that is a complete disgusting example of the art form at its worst. This is not that. It is not even close. So, case closed. Absolutely not guilty. Let's move on to talk about the next match on the docket because history being made here with our first negative two-star match being found not guilty. Craziness. History about to be made with Johnny C as well. All right, now I, I promised some history, so I'm going to deliver. So the next match on the list is the first one that we are going to miss. It's Big John Studd versus Mr. Wrestling 2 from September 85 in Fresno. So yeah, sorry, just not taped, so I, I don't know what to do with it. But here's the second part of history that is going to be such an impactful thing to discuss. Folks, it is my first AWA anything ever. Because this is Super Clash 2. It's May 2nd, 1987. From the Cal Palace and San Francisco. Or San Francisco. I can't remember. California. No, no, San Francisco. It's San Francisco. San Francisco is the big hero, six city. But it's the case. Of Jerry Blackwell versus Boris Zukov. Folks, I am really flying without a parachute here because I, I mean, I know who Boris zukov is, but yeah, I, that's it. I have no context, preconceived anything. As I fast forward to get to the match, because it is billed as the semi-main event, uh, wow, which is something. I see so many legends on my screen though. I see like Mr. Perfect and Sherry and the Rockers and I'm sure somebody else that I didn't see is on here and that's cool. But oh my God, this fucking presentation. So here's all the context I can provide. There, it feels like there's five people there when they do a large crowd shot as these first two people enter. I mean, it's not that bad, but it's... I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of what I expected, I guess. Okay. Now, a large man is walking down the aisle with a beard, and he is a large man. He has a he has on some sort of coat that says Crusher. And there is a man behind him that is walking down the aisle. He is topless with a porn stash, and he's got some jeans and cowboy boots on. As they approach the ring, a chic. I don't know which one. Uh, we all know that wrestling has apparently a few, is yelling at these two men as they enter the ring. Behind this sheik, again, not sure which one it is, stands Boris Zukov. He's not yet one half of the Bolsheviks, um, but he's from the Soviet Union. So, of course, there's a chain around his neck and he's wearing that hat. I mean, come on, he's, he's a Soviet character. You know the hat I'm talking about. The same one that George Costanza buys from that fancy place and charges it to the Peterman account, and then he loses it at that lady's house. and He has to go back and ask for it. It's a great episode. If nothing else, this episode of Starman leads you to Netflix and that episode of Seinfeld. I believe it's in season eight when Peterman is on sabbatical. But like I said, it's the semi-main of the evening, so it better fucking deliver. Uh, a close up confirms to me that it's the Iron Sheik, but then the close up pulls back, and I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute, that's not the Iron Sheik." <laughs> uh, and then it, it's told to me on commentary that it is not like I had guessed Iron Sheik; it's General Adnan Adnan Al I believe, is the, this character's name, but it's General Adnan from uh, the triangle of terror with sergeant slaughter and the other oh, whoa whoa dude you tell me there's two sheiks in one place at the same time brother oh, i'm starting to freak out but yeah it's it's general Adnan. and so the announcer the ring announcer that is tells me uh, or announces jerry blackwell as jerry crusher blackwell so i if this tells you anything about what I know about what i 'm about to watch, folks, I thought the porn stash dude in the jeans was going to be the wrestler, but it 's the fat guy is Jerry Blackwell uh, the jeans guy for anyone who 's keeping track at home is get this <laughs> I fucking love this uh, rock and roll buck zoom off now hey i'm i 'm not throwing shade. That dude, if someone on this planet is going to be named Rock and Roll Buck Zumoff, it's that guy, all right? And thank God as as we get closer to the bell ringing, someone finally talks on commentary because up until this point there was nobody, folks, just the fucking crowd smatters. I didn't know. I was praying that someone would start talking because I don't know if I could handle this match without commentary. And let me explain, it's, I was going to say legendary commentator, I don't know if he is, but it's a dude named Rod Trongard. Now that is an 80s sports commentator name, if I've ever fucking heard one. That is a power name, and this guy is a old-timey power announcer, alright, and he saved this presentation for me. This crowd loves the USA because they are chanting the hell out of it. A very shitty bell starts to ring as some youngsters start a Sheik's a Freak chant. So hey, these guys are having some fun. But we need to get order in the court because the bell did ring. We start with a stall. Yes, that's what it feels like when they stall. Nothing happens at all. Finally, finally. Iran calls an emergency summit with the Soviet Union because Boris Zukov slides out to get some advice from his manager, and we get lots of shots of the crowd. And folks, it's quite a crowd. As Boris Zhukov enters the ring, the Iron Sheik yells at a fan, and I don't know what he said, but it sounded like this, something, 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 big, fat belly. <laughs> and that was a high spot. 82 seconds into the match, there's finally contact, as we have our first lockup. After two seconds, the men pull apart. On commentary, Rod Trongard says, Ah-ha! Right as they separate. Like, this is given him a glorious piece of information that he will now be able to better educate us, the viewers. Boris gets shoved away. 38 seconds pass, and after that pull apart, Lockup number two begins with the same result as Boris is pushed away. Thank God, once again, Boris rolls out to have a chat with the general. (laughs) According to the camera, some kidsters at ringside are having a hell of a time with this because we get more crowd shots. After about four minutes, the third lockup begins, but Blackwell has had enough. He's punching now, and it gets in an avalanche splash, and... Why am I saying it like it's good? Because I will be honest, okay? This third lockup hits and I'm ready to jump and Blackwell just unloads and he's like kind of quick while doing it. (laughs) Okay, like if that had to happen, I'm here for it. This causes Boris to flee again to the outside. Luckily though, he calls timeout clearly in the referee's view. So it's an official timeout. We're, uh, speaking of timeout, we're about five minutes into the match at this point. Boris is back in the ring for some walk-around stalling. And then, in what was absolutely the best part of the entire match, Boris Zukov goes in for lockup number four. And Jerry Blackwell is like, fuck it. And he just lifts his right leg up and does the little Steve Austin gut kick that he did towards the end to set up the stunner. Because, you know, when Austin first starts doing the kick wham stunner, his kick... It's fierce, it's intense, and he lifts his leg all the way up. But towards the end there, it was just kind of, meh. <laughs> That's the sound of Sokol Z. Vossen doing a little kick stunner. Meh, stunner. Um, but Blackwell does this, he's like, fuck you, I'm not locking up again. Little gut kick, <laughs> and I just, I love that this Jerry Blackwell guy was so into his character that he knew that Jerry Blackwell has fucking had enough at this point. Jerry then takes Boris into the quarter and rams his head into the turnbuckle and gets all the way to 10. I can't tell you how impressed I was that he got all the way. I thought for sure there'd be some heel chicanery, but no. And it looks like Jerry knows his audience because they counted loud and proud for all 10. He then drops a vicious elbow. <laughs> but then things start getting a little crazier because Jerry Blackwell puts Boris Zukov in a chin lock and Boris sort of does the arm wavy thing to get sympathy. It's again, folks, this happens on Starman in these negative rank matches when the heels forget that they're the heels and start to do the babyface comeback when they're in the chin lock. And folks, we've got a little bit of that here. Now, Boris gets to the ropes and Blackwell beats on Boris when he's in the ropes. So what the fuck? Is this an Austin Hart level double turn? Because Blackwell continues to play heel now. As Boris gets out of the ropes, uh, he, Blackwell rakes his, rakes his back with a vicious scratch. On commentary, Rod Trongard responds to his scratch and says, The Red, get redder if you catch my drift. But then Boris flip-flops back into the heel because he takes control with an eye rake. And the crowd furiously chants, United States, America. United States, America. So they are into this. The Sheik gets in some cheap shots. And then Blackwell is getting choked in the ropes by Boris Zukov. So we have flipped again. (laughs) Has 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 this ever happened before? Has there ever been a double turn? And then a minute later, the double turn gets reversed. It's history, folks. It's Super Clash 2. And then, in an amazing moment of brand synergy, Boris Zukov is in control with... Armbar now uh, he, he eventually gets to he has the armbar sinktons synced uh, you know cinched in locked up tight but Boris stands up and he starts stomping on the arm that was just in the arm bar and as he does this it sounds like a shitty car trying to start because you hear the sound of Boris stomping and then Blackwell Yells in pain, oh, no, 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 Oh, no, 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 Stop. On commentary, Ron Troncard says, and I quote, the screams of Jerry Blackwell. Like, it's the most important thing he's ever reported in history. We cut to the outside where rock and roll Buck Zumoff is scratching his inner ear. Clearly not used to being on camera in a major professional wrestling organization. Boris Zukov then light, cinches in the standing arm bar. He drops down for a leg lace arm bar. There's somehow an amateur wrestling sequence and Jerry Blackwell comes back with a headbutt and hits a poorly executed clothesline. Boris Zukov is dazed, but pushes Jerry Blackwell into the referee. The sheet comes in. The heels attempt a double clothesline, but the Crusher ducks and hits shitty clotheslines on both men. He then covers Boris Zukov. The referee is still outside the ring. We get a visual three count. The referee finally gets in the ring and then counts one, two, three. So this shitty clothesline from the Crusher is enough for a six count. And Borzukov is buried and must retreat to the WWF to reclaim his career. Wow. And you know what? I will say this: this match was dog shit awful. Hilarious, and the crowd absolutely didn't seem to care how bad it was. I got the distinct feeling, folks. This is what they paid for. And you know what? It's a different time and it's a different place. And I could tell from the crowd shots that I was dealing with a different wrestling promotion. And folks, these this audience wanted different things from their different wrestling promotion. And I think they got it. I have no doubt saying, folks, this is unequivocally your grandmother's favorite wrestling match. And based on the evidence presented due to being in the right time at the right place, I can't believe this. We find the match not guilty, but I want to make something very clear. This match is fucking awful, but when someone's like, hey, let's do a sketch for a comedy show about an 80s wrestling match, this is the 80s wrestling match. This is every 80s wrestling match. Every time that fucker walked up to you and were like, hey, you like wrestling? You know that stuff's fake, right? This is the match that that person had in their head when mocking professional wrestling. And if for nothing else, this project has brought it to my attention and I had a lot of fun watching it. So sue me, not guilty. Actually, don't sue me uh, because sometimes in a court that actually happens. So... (laughs) not guilty, and we are going to move on to our final contest of the evening. I thought these guys would end me, but you know what? They kind of put a smile on my face. I'm not the only one with a smile on my face, because the next contest takes us to 1988 in the heart of the NWA, where we get young, spry, baby-faced Jim Ross smiling on commentary. But before we can get to the smiles... There are a couple of things that are going to make us frown, and that's a few more matches that we just can't cover because they just aren't recorded. We miss out on Kamala versus George the Animal Steel from Oakland in May of 1987. We also miss Scott Casey versus Jose Estrada from June in 1987 in Fresno. So, folks, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do about it. As I mentioned, though, We're straight out of Compton with the N.W.A. Bunkhouse Stampede, 1988. At the home of WrestleMania II, question mark? The Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York? Shots fired, indeed. What are you guys thinking, stomping into Vince's territory like this? You better put on a hell of a show. It's January 24th, 1988. Uh, Let's get into some context here and see what we're dealing with. Tony Schiavone is our ring announcer and he has a porn stash and a mullet that you absolutely can't believe. Now on one of our sister shows here in the Aqua Cave, WCW Must Die, I have a recurring gag where I say one of the random security guards looks like the hero of the film Samurai Cop. Well folks, Tony Schiavone here looks just like the villain does in Samurai Cop. So if nothing else, I hope by the time all of this shit has been completed, you've at least taken the time to watch Samurai Cop and experience the cheesiness and the fun for yourself. Now, this is the case, according to Tony Schiavone, of a 20-minute, time-limit, one-fall match for the NWA World Television Championship. It's the case of Beautiful Babe versus La Femme Nikita Koloff. No, seriously, it's it's Beautiful Bobby versus Nikita Koloff. Nikita Koloff is the reigning, defending, heavyweight television champion of the world. Um, Jim Cornette, thank God, is with Beautiful Bobby for this thing. Now, I'm not here to endorse Jim Cornette, the person, but I am here to endorse the 1988 version of Jim Cornette, the wrestling manager character. JR and Bob Cottle are on the call, and Bobby Eaton is one-half, of the United States Tag Team Champions. So he does have some clout coming into this thing. But he is a tag guy. And that's going to play into this. Now Nikita Koloff is billed as the Russian Nightmare. So I'm sure there's adrenaline in his soul. Something, something, something back and through. Man around us saw the to see I don't know anymore. Of the words to the of song, my father said, when I was younger, I have a Russian sickle. Her, her. So that's the Russian nightmare version. Now the bell rings, so enough singing. Let's get order in the court. Now this happens after the bell rings, so it's part of the evidence. And I'm not sure how to say this, but beautiful Bobby... um. You know, he's got a beautiful pink frilly robe with some shoulder pads and some some doily type patterns on his beautiful robe. And when he takes off his robe, the camera lingers. So we watch the entire thing happen. And I don't know how to say this, guys, but it's as if you're wandering around your grandmother's house. You walk into her bedroom immediately as she's disrobing. Because beautiful Bobby Eaton has very long, long, puffy hair, he has a fupa, and his nipples are hard. So I just don't know. I mean, I this has never happened to me, but I got the feeling as the camera lingers on him, like, good God, let's, let this poor woman get untressed without this camera. I mean, it's so intrusive. And I felt very strange and awful about it. And I'm going to post a picture to my Twitter profile, at C. that's J-O-N-N-I-E-S-E-A, for all the folks, because I do spell my name uniquely, um, and you'll get to see Grandma Disrobe. 90 seconds have passed in the match, and there's been no contact, but there have been multiple hugs between Jim Cornette and Beautiful Bobby, and I think that's great character stuff. I'm also digging that in the uh, upper decks here in the Nassau Coliseum, we've got that fantastic Winston Cigarette scoreboard, which does tell me the current time, uh, which will play a factor in this match. Multiple lockups transition to Bobby Eaton stalling and walking to the outside and, you know, sort of getting things straight and re-strategizing with Jim Cornette, just like we saw in the earlier match with the heels. You start to see patterns form in these matches, folks. Cheap punches by beautiful Bobby, and a real fight breaks out. So that's okay. Twice now, we have to cut away to Jim Cornette giving Bobby Eaton advice, and the advice is sound. He keeps telling Bobby that he's not going to out, you know, he's not going to overpower the man, so outsmart him. It's an interesting use of Jim Cornette realizing the TV camera is in front of his face trying to get a storyline across. And it's not exactly like you know, groundbreaking stuff, but it is 1988, and Cornette knows this ain't no house show match. There's a camera here. I can try to tell some of the match story, uh, you know, and maybe they'll pick up on commentary. Cornette continues to heckle as we get through some touchy-feely, or, you know, as, you know, we're, uh, feeling out periods of the match. Jesus Christ, they've got me lost already. Um, so I appreciate that, and we talked about that awesome Winston cigarette clock, When I first saw it, the bell was ringing at 7.02. It's 7.07, and we get our first arm bar. Tony Schiavone confirms the clock is accurate by coming over the house mic and saying there's 15 minutes left in this 20-minute contest. Now, the boys stumble out to the floor, and it's a nice change of pace. We get a lot of brawling on the outside. Well, a lot meaning like 20 seconds because it almost ends immediately, and they get back in the ring. Now, Bobby Eaton has Nikita on the mat in a side headlock. And I will give Bobby credit. He continuously says, Ask him! Ask him! And I just love the heel, ask him. And yes, I'm not like a huge Jericho mark, even though I say armbar the way I do. But damn it, they've given it to me. But I do love Jericho's, ask him. So I love seeing heels do it long before Jericho's time. At 7.09, things go fast for just a moment as we get Irish whips and leapfrogs when we don't know who is going to make contact because they bounce back and forth on the ropes. Finally, Nikita Koloff hits a very strong style, (laughs) probably misusing that, body slam. Yes, I know strong style is not this, but Nikita Koloff looks like a beast with the body slam because he's supposed to be a powerful character. Now we transition into some more armbar headlock type stuff, and if I had a nickel for every time Nikita Koloff slaps on Beautiful Bobby's flesh in this match when he's in a submission hold, I'd have like $26.45. It's ridiculous. Eaton does have the side headlock cinched in as we get a boring chant. Not a ton of these, but I wanted to point this one out. Now, Beautiful Bobby punches Nikita Koloff so hard that Nikita falls through the middle rope. And while I was very entertained by this... Seems like the shoe's on the wrong foot here. Seems like Nikita Koloff should be the character that's punching the heel so hard. Because Nikita Koloff is a bruiser. Now, they fight on the outside since Nikita's fallen out. And beautiful Bobby gets thrown into the post, which is basically the 1988 equivalent of going through a table. So he should be dead, especially when you consider the fact that Nikita Koloff gives him a hip toss on the cold. Not Bill Watts, but somehow Bill Watts matless concrete. I mean, it's just concrete, folks. At this point, I'm feeling they should have just booked a double count out. Because, well, that that's a scenario where nobody wins, and maybe that's what they're going for. We'll, we'll see. When they finally get back in the ring, though, Beautiful Bobby is on offense. So what was the point of all this damage that he took on the outside? Eaton gets a two count off of something, which it doesn't matter, because since they're on the mat already, Beautiful Bobby's able to cinch in armbar. There is a huge Cornette sucks chant that encourages Nikita Koloff to get to his feet. And that just goes to show how awesome Jim Cornette has been during this match yelling random things. Because the crowd is still invested in seeing his guy lose. So I give these sports entertainers all the credit for not losing the crowd and having a very boring match. Bobby Eaton goes up to the top rope and hits a missile dropkick. And it looks great. And Bobby Eaton is, of course, a master of the flying arts. But this is such a babyface move for 1988. And I just don't understand. And beautiful Bobby doesn't let us forget that he's the heel, though. So he at least remembers his character. Because we transition from the missile drop kick to... Armbar. Great spot here is Jim Cornette yells, Give it up, Nikita, you're just a dumb commie. And, I mean, hey, why are you yelling at somebody just for being a communist? But it's 1988, so it's pretty funny. Tony Schiavone says, Five minutes left. Oh, thank God. Still in the armbar. And we get about 16 flesh taps from Nikita here. I can't stand this at all. Four minutes left. Nikita Kola. Nikita Kola. <laughs> Let me get a uh, Nikita Kola. Just order a large farva. <laughs> <laughs> oh that did not mean to do that to say all that shtick. But Nikita Kola just came out the tongue. Nikita hits the Russian sickle, and it knocks beautiful Bobby into the second rope. And why not just do the finish here? For fuck's sake! I mean, he hit his move. He, that's his move! Spoiler alert, they're going to a time limit draw. Okay, there's four minutes. I just... Uh, it, none of this makes sense. The Russian sickle is so strong when it comes to the impact that both men are down on the mat. Beautiful Bobby recovers first after taking the man's finish. And guess what happens? Armbar. Jesus, three minutes left according to Tony. When Tony yells, two minutes left, we're still in an arm bar. Nikita Koloff fights out. Beautiful Bobby hits an awesome arm slam. Uh, I forget what it's technically called, and I'm on a live show here, so I'm just going to improvise. He uses the arm and slams Nikita's face first. Like It's a really good move, and it makes sense for the match. Now we have a modified arm bar. One minute left. The power of hearing there's one minute left makes Nikita Koloff fire up. 30 seconds left, Nikita throws beautiful Bobby into the corner and hits the mounted punches for a 10. Uh, Nikita hits a very shitty version of the Russian sickle with two seconds left and makes the cover as time expires. Thank God the match is over. Now, I, the match is so boring, there's not a whole lot of evidence to present, but the main story is armbar wearing the man down and then Nikita gets out of it and gets put back in it. So this is a unique situation. They had a story, and they told it. And they didn't fuck up their telling of it. They stuck to their guns, and they told the story. Now, I'm assuming they did this because they don't want Nikita Koloff to lose. And they certainly don't want Beautiful Bobby to win. So they want a time limit draw, which means everyone should come out of this match looking the same they did as they came in. And i got to be honest with you, this storyline makes Nikita look like a bitch. And I noted Nikita Koloff is historically one of those guys that like doesn't do jobs and he's super tough, like in quotation marks. And he's victim to an arm bar for basically twenty straight minutes. This makes Nikita Koloff look shittier than he did when he came in. Now they don't lose the crowd. There are there's a smattering of boring, but they get into it. I I guess this southern wrestling, if you pardon the expression, I'm just trying to make a point, crowd is they're used to this. They expect these types of matches, and so they might be a little more okay with it. Jim Cornette is the best part, and that's a too bad because he should be a spice that accentuates this like tasty new dish that we're having for dinner. He shouldn't be the best part because he's not an active combatant. I'm trying desperately to fi- to figure out how I can give these guys a guilty verdict without simply being like the match was super boring. And I think I'm going to go with this Nikita koloff looking weak thing. Because even though they stuck to their story, it's the absolute wrong story to tell if you want to have everyone save face. So because of that, I find this match absolutely guilty. And I can already hear the smattering. I can already hear the anger that I gave that Super Clash match a not guilty verdict. And here we are in the throes of the NWA with a classic-style wrestling match and I'm giving it a guilty verdict. Well, it's not my personal preference that's coming into play here. I understand the Nikita Koloff character is supposed to look like a badass, and this makes him look bad. And if your goal is to keep everyone at the same level they were, folks, you have failed, and Nikita Koloff has lost a lot of stock options in my eyes, and I'm going to stand by the rendering of the guilty verdict. And, folks, that is going to put a close on the first chapter of Negative Two Star Matches. Wow. I, I think it's safe to say this has been one of our most interesting episodes. All Putting everything into perspective, I can say, regardless of the court cases or all that shtick that I have for my actual show... I totally get where Dave is coming from on all three of these things. But I think the big takeaway is that the two I found not guilty did what they set out to do. They got us to a point where we can focus on our celebrities and focus on the pageantry of our massive spectacle event. And then in our second match, they gave us the prototypical 80s wrestling match that folks just came to expect from... The program that we were watching. And then here in the end, they tried to put on a wrestling match that kept everybody looking good. And we came out with the champ world beater Nikita Koloff looking like chump change. And so I think it's clear why that match is our guilty match of this episode. But don't find yourself guilty, folks. There's so much fun to be had here in the Aqua Cave. Like us, subscribe, write a review, hit me up on Twitter. Do all that fun social stuff that you hate when people advertise. But damn it, we have to in order to get the word out. Because we want everybody to have fun with us here in the Aqua Cave. Find the spice that accentuates your tasty meal. Whether it's the continuing adventures of Starman... WCW Must Die, where we track the death of WCW starting in the year 2000 and make a lot of jokes at the expense of Vince Russo. Come back for Kingfish, where we track the early days of Sunday Night Heat and come back for the last three episodes coming soon of UPN, where we cover the first six episodes of SmackDown. There's so much fun to be had here in the Aqua Cave. We hope that you keep coming back for all of it. But if nothing else, we will see you the next time we reach for the stars here on Starman. Look what you've done, you motherfucking star boy. Oh, yeah.